Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. I don't know about you guys, I've started to basically mark time with these things. So uh, if any of our listeners are doing that, I guess you're welcome. We got a great lineup of articles for you this week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Our first link comes from The New Yorker from Anna Russell. It's a letter from the UK and it's called The Laughing Gas Wars of London. Oh. Wars? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you would think this might be sort of a historical piece, but this is specifically about nitrous oxide canisters that are being littered in huge amounts in London this summer. <laughs> but like on accident or on purpose? Oh, on purpose. Okay. Part of this is because everyone's in lockdown and there's been a tradition of a lot of people, especially in London, going to public parks to drink because, you know, the green spaces are considered somewhat safer, especially in the socially distanced environment. But the problem is we're getting a lot of litter and it starts off by noting that there is plastic cups from birthday parties, paper confetti, masks, rubber gloves in the bushes and trees. Oh. But there have also been a lot of nitrous oxide silver canisters. They look like these little miniature torpedoes and about the size of a human thumb. And they've noticed that they've been accumulating in areas of, quote, frenzied socializing, often discarded <laughs> alongside a deflated balloon and an empty box of chips. The article notes the balloons are what are used to dispense the gas. The chips are incidental. <laughs> um, it's become prevalent enough that they actually banned it by name along with alcohol, barbecuing, and playing loud music. But part of what makes this really confusing is that the legal situation around nitrous oxide, at least in the UK, is super confusing. So it's legal to sell nitrous oxide canisters for non-recreational use. And they are used legally all the time in medicine and catering. Mm -hmm. They're what <laughs> make whipped cream frothy in whipped cream canisters. Yeah, see, that's how I know them. You know them from actually making whipped cream? <laughs> right. Well, so what it was was I don't know how fast the drug lingo changes, but when I was younger, these were called whippets. Yeah. And then my aunt bought this cool, like, it'll immediately froth your whipped cream tool. And she brought it out at Thanksgiving and was like, hey, we're going to make this for the pumpkin pie. And I was like, oh, you're using whippets. And she's like, excuse me, what? And <laughs> then I had to explain why I knew what whippets were, which I had never used them, but I did know what they were. Right. But there are, yeah, there are legal uses for them for sure, is the point. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why you can still get them at corner shops. I think they're available in head shops. Basically, you can sell it anywhere, but only to the right customers. And so, you know, there are reviews on Amazon where people can say, oh, it makes very good cream for cakes. Yes, cakes. Yes. Had a wicked <laughs> night after eating that cake. Yes, cake. <laughs> and so the littering is obviously a big problem, but David Nutt, who runs the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit at Imperial College London, finds this whole debate kind of a distraction because, and this is a quote from him, anyone with an ounce of common sense knows that it's one of the least harmful drugs. Between 2001 and 2016, misuse of the gas caused about two deaths a year hmm. in England and Wales, which is a very, very low number for an estimated seven or 800,000 users. The high lasts less than a minute. It doesn't cause hangovers or render users unable to drive. And so most of this public outcry is about littering. And he notes that they're calling him whippets as well. So okay. he knows that lingo for I'm it. still cool is what it is. <laughs> right, exactly. You're still hip and with it, Jennifer. That's right. <laughs> 
But yeah, people are just tossing these whippets in car parks, wherever. So in his mind, it's like complaining about broken bottles because people drink alcohol, essentially. Mm -hmm. They don't think that there's a rise in demand for nitrous oxide. It's just that because people are moving outside to do their partying, there's higher visibility. Yeah, when you read the headline, I was thinking like nitrous oxide wars. I was thinking like people attacking each other with nitrous oxide. This is downright whimsical. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm fine with this. It's just, you know, it's a litter problem. You got to work on it. <laughs> you know, I, I will say that at one of the um, Burning Man local events I've been to, there was a camp that put on kind of a spectacle called the Whippet Olympics. And the goal was that <laughs> people had to do a Whippet and then run or like spin around or do some kind of physical activity, namely because it's very difficult difficult to have motor coordination right. function. So if a war involving nitrous oxide ever came around, I wouldn't be too worried. I wouldn't really need a huge defense budget. It would right. Just be, <laughs> make sure you got your camera on. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from Wired.com, and it is called The Quest to Liberate $300,000 of Bitcoin from an Old Zip File. Oh, oh no. no. Yeah, so y'all know zip files, right? They're the standard compressed format that you'll see on yeah. pretty much every computer nowadays. It's kind of the default. Mm -hmm. So in October, Michael Stay, who is a former Google security engineer, got a strange message on LinkedIn. A total stranger had lost access to his Bitcoin private keys and wanted Stay's help getting his $300,000 back. For Stay, it wasn't a total surprise that the guy, as Stay calls him, <laughs> had found him. Since 19 years ago, he actually published a paper detailing a technique for breaking into encrypted zip files. Huh. So the guy had bought about $10,000 worth of Bitcoin in January 2016 with, you know, some pennies he had laying in the couch, I assume, which was <laughs> well before the boom. And he had encrypted the private keys in a zip file, but had forgotten the password to that zip file. And so he was hoping oh, that Stay no. could help him break in. Yeah. In a talk at the DEF CON security conference this week, Stay detailed the epic attempt that ensued. And one of the things that he had covered in his previous talk was how many implementations of ZIP are known to be insecure to the point that U.S. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon actually called on the National Institute of Standards and Technology last summer to investigate the issue. So after some initial analysis, Stay estimated that he would need to charge $100,000 to break into the file. Oh. And yeah, that's a little bit more expensive than a thank you, but that was a lowball offer to begin with, let's be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. if he successfully so, gets in, it's fine. The problem is if he wants the 100000 even if he doesn't get in. Very true. I think it was only if they got in. Right. So the guy did take the deal. Because after all, he'd still be turning quite the profit. And Stay described it as, It's the most fun I've had in ages. Every morning I was excited to get to work and wrestle with the problem. <laughs> the zip cipher was designed decades ago by an amateur cryptographer, and the fact that it has held up so well is remarkable. While some zip files can be cracked easily with off-the-shelf tools, the guy wasn't that lucky. Which is partly why the work was priced so high. So newer generations of ZIP programs use a established and robust cryptographic standard called AES, but outdated versions like the one used in the guy's case mm -hmm. use ZIP 2.0 legacy encryption that can often be cracked, but the degree of difficulty depends on how it's implemented. So it's one thing to say that something is broken, but actually breaking into it is a whole different ball of wax. Sure, mm -hmm. yeah. So the guy still had the laptop he had used to make and encrypt the zip file, which was also a decent indicator that the Bitcoin was actually his to begin with. Right. <laughs> so Stay at least knew which zip program had encrypted the file and what version it ran. 
He also had a timestamp of when the file was created, which the InfoZip software uses to inform its cryptography scheme. Uh, a lot of the time, these cryptographic softwares will use random values, such as the current time, to seed its encryption, essentially. Hmm. So from a massive pool of passwords and encryption keys, Stay was able to narrow it down to something on the order of quintillions. Oh, so, that's a nice start. <laughs> yeah. So to run an attack of that scale would actually require renting cloud graphics processing units. So Stay tapped the Pyrofx CEO, Nash Foster, to implement the cryptanalysis code and run it on these high-powered NVIDIA, Tesla, general-purpose GPUs. So their initial expectation was that they would have to do engineering for a couple of months, and then the attack would have to run for several months to succeed. But Mike ended up being able to do a more effective job with the cryptanalysis, so they spent more time developing the attack, but then it only needed to run for about a week, which saved the guy a lot of money on infrastructure costs. And sure. I believe they ended up charging him only about six to $7,000 total hey. once they realized yeah, how much huh. money they could save. One of the things that Nash Foster is talking about in the article is that 10 years ago, there would have been no way to do this without building special purpose hardware, and the cost mm -hmm. probably would have exceeded the value of the guy's Bitcoin. Right. So they're only be able to do it now because they just had, you know, freely available cloud resources. The question did still remain, though, whether or not all the GPU crunching would actually work. The guy had not given the entire zip file to Stay and Foster because he likely did not trust that they would just steal his cryptocurrency if they mm. managed to crack the keys themselves. Instead, he was able to give Stay and Foster the encrypted headers, which are kind of like the informational notes about the file, without mm -hmm. sharing that actual content. So four months after that first LinkedIn message, they queued it all up and started the attack. And it ran for 10 days. And as Foster says, poof, out came a bunch of Bitcoin. It was such a relief. Wow. Yeah, they're able to just throw computing power at it, fix a few bugs, and just go after it. Nice. Foster describes it saying he got a smoking deal. <laughs> if the details of his situation had been different, if he had used a slightly more recent version of Zip, it would have been impossible. Mm. But in this particular case, there was something we could do. And it's interesting because the fact that Zip is so ubiquitous means that Stan Foster's research does have larger implications. A Johns Hopkins University cryptographer, Matthew Green, said that it's really cool from a crypto-fiddling perspective. It's one of these <laughs> ancient attacks on a crummy scheme, and nobody would have thought about it being relevant. But believe it or not, this bad stuff is still out there everywhere, so it's actually really relevant. And the fact that there's a pile of money at the end of it is really great. I feel like he should have given more money to him. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like a bigger reward was necessary for what these guys did for him, for the guy. Yeah, but the fact that they were successful, though, might actually get them more references because a lot of people have trouble accessing, you know, lost passwords right. to different Bitcoin repositories. Yeah, absolutely. And Stay actually talks about how since he published his technical account of the project in April, a bunch of people have reached out asking him to help yep. recover passwords to their yeah. Bitcoin wallet. <laughs> the encryption used on Bitcoin wallets is not the same as the encryption used on zip files. Oh, okay. So... Mm -hmm. There's not really anything he can do. Yeah, it was only yeah. the fact that this old, kind of obscure, now updated encryption algorithm that was used on a specific laptop at a specific time had this specific flaw that they were able to crack open, hmm. which is uh, pretty slim chances for the guy. Yeah, mm -hmm. he got lucky. He'll write his password yeah. down next time, I bet. Yeah, seriously. No, don't write it down. <laughs> I know. Do something safer. No. I know, but if he'd written it down, he <laughs> or, wouldn't have lost it. Yeah, or use the password manager, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Next link? Next, next link. link. All right, well, this one comes from National Geographic. It's by Jason Biddle. It's about a rare mutant honeybee. It starts with, <laughs> it starts with master beekeeper Joseph Zigerzinski. 
He's been a beekeeper since 1976. He currently manages 6 million bees at his farm in Philadelphia. So it's fair to say he knows his bees. And in June, he noticed a particular bee in his hive, which had these creamy yellow eyes. And they were really, really big that made them look like male eyes. But the abdomen of this bee was female. Yeah. So it was just a very strange bee altogether. And he got very lucky in that he happened to have a photographer with him that day. I'm not sure what she was supposed to be photographing, but she was there. And so she took a bunch of pictures of this special bee and they sent it off to a honeybee specialist at North Carolina State University named David Tarpey. And he confirmed, yes, obviously this is a mutant bee, but more interestingly, the eyes and the fact that the bee was showing signs of both sexes were actually two different mutations. The eye mutation is sort of a rare but known thing. The bee is probably blind, but what they call gynandromorphism Mm. is much rarer. And Tarpy said it's like catching two bolts of lightning in the same bottle for this bee to have both mutations at the same time. And it goes a little bit into some really interesting bee inheritance patterns. So humans have one set of chromosomes from each parent, right? Mm -hmm. But when a queen bee and a drone mate, she only ever lays female eggs. The male bees actually come from unfertilized eggs, which means they only have one set of genes from the queen. They're kind of like clones, but obviously they're not because they're male. And it leads to the sort of unusual situation where male bees have no fathers, but they do have grandfathers because the queen bee came from a fertilized egg. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. But basically, Tarpy said, with only one set of genes in the male bees, mutations are much more likely to be expressed because they don't have that second good copy to kind of overwrite and protect them from it. So eye mutations are much more common in male bees, and they've been studied since 1953. But even then, the gynandromorphism that this bee is showing is actually special even within that. Usually, gynandromorph bees are bilateral meaning there's a male-female split right down the middle. Like the left half is male and the right half is female or vice versa. And it's known to happen when the egg starts to split but doesn't finish before fertilization. It's basically like conjoined twins, effectively. Hmm. But this particular bee has what's called mosaic gynandromorphism, which means the traits are all muddled together. There's like female wings, but then there's some male mandibles, and the whole thing is just a mishmash. And they have no idea how that happens in development. And they actually, they went and got a quote from Aaron Krachilski at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, who has worked with bilateral gynandromorphism before. And she said, these mutants are seen as easily disregarded, like mistakes, but I think we're underestimating them. She said, for instance, it could be that these half male, half female bees may be a key step in evolutionary uh, sort of precursors to new forms or behaviors. Right. The key that they don't know is whether the gynandromorphism affects their longevity or their fertility, because if one of these half female bees could, in fact, become a queen and start laying eggs, that would change the entire reproductive society Mm -hmm. of how these bees are being made. So it's an interesting thing that she thinks obviously should be studied more. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, will not be studied on Zygorzynski's bee. He pulled the special bee out of his hive and preserved it in a jar. So it's gone. But... (laughs) He argued that it would have died anyway because since it also had the eye mutation and was blind, it was going to get kicked out of the hive or rejected pretty quickly. So this way, at least, he has it, it's preserved, Mm. and it can be studied. But yeah, so blind intersex bees are a thing, and we have one in a jar somewhere. Wow. 
I mean, talk about also in terms of slim chances, like out of six million bees, he happened to find this one. That's pretty wild. Oh, yeah. But if it's got milky, creamy yellow eyes, it's probably easy to spot because that just sounds like a zombie. Right, right. <laughs> they actually, there's a picture of it in the article uh, and it is, it's cute. And you can see like, oh, yeah, those are big old eyes on that thing. It would pop out if you were looking among six million bees for it, I guess. <laughs> Next link. Next link. link. This next link comes from the BBC, uh, incidentally, under the work life section of the website. Can't really piece that together because (laughs) this is titled The Saboteurs You Can Hire to End Your Relationship. Wow. It's kind of work life, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yeah, it may tie into work life a little bit. It's mostly kind of in the personal life realm because in Japan, there are these private agents called Wakare Sasia, and you basically pay them to seduce your spouse or their partner in the idea of either breaking up a marriage, saving a marriage, but basically sending in like seducer spies to (laughs) do some relationship work, you may be too chicken to do yourselves. Wow. And this starts off with a story about a particular Wakare Sasuya situation that ended kind of tragically. In 2010, Takeshi Kuwabara was sentenced for the murder of his lover, Rie Isohata. What happened was that Kuwabara was the Wakarasasia agent, this like seducer double agent. He was married with children himself, and he engineered a meeting with Isohata in a supermarket. He was a professional that was hired by Rie's husband to break up their marriage because he basically, you need to have photographic evidence for divorce, and mm. it's needed in Japan when a divorce is contested. And so this agent, he claimed to be a single IT worker. They began an affair. It eventually led to a genuine relationship. Mm. But then once Isohata, who was the wife that, you know, the husband hired the guy to try to divorce, once she learned that he was actually a agent and it was all mm. based on deception, she tried to break off the relationship. He was, you know, in a real relationship with her now. So unwilling to let her go, he strangled her with a piece of string and then oh. was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And so, as the article notes, the Wakara Sasia industry took a hit after the uh. killing of Isohata. <clears throat> so it basically inspired some reform of the industry, including a requirement that private detective agencies obtain licenses. <laughs> and it's still a controversial and high-cost situation, but around 270 of these Wakara Sasia agencies are advertising online. It can cost anywhere from about 400,000 yen for a straightforward case where there may be lots of information about a target's activities. That's roughly around $4,000. But fees can go as high as 20 million yen, which is around $300,000 if a client is like a politician or a celebrity and there's a lot of secrecy. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the clients are not married people who want help separating from their spouses, but include people who want their spouse's affairs broken up. So if you know that you have a spouse, they're having an affair, you still want to be married to them, but you just want them to knock this nonsense (laughs) off. You create a situation where they're seduced and seduce them away from their extramarital lover and then just ghost them. Wait, so they are creating a love square to break up a love triangle? Am I getting that right? (laughs) Exactly right. Wow. A TV and radio producer notes that there's a market for everything in Japan. So you can rent fake family members. You can separate a child from an unsuitable girlfriend or boyfriend because everybody knows when you've got a teenager dating someone, if the parent says you shouldn't date them, it's not effective at all, right? Uh, Yeah. 
Yeah, I question the motivations of not just all of the people involved in paying for these services, but also the people who say to themselves, this is what I want to do for a job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, like you noted, the one guy who murdered someone, he was married and was pretending that he wasn't. So he on his own was basically like, I'm going to go have an affair, but I'm going to get paid to have an affair. Like, it seems like anyone who does this job already is pretty sketchy to begin with. Yeah. And the one person, uh, Mochizuki, who is one of the people who kind of runs a Wakara Sasia service, it notes that he's a former musician who turned his lifelong interest in detective work into a career. So, I mean, if you're a musician... <laughs> I'm good at stalking. What career could I go into? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I feel like there's got to be a movie in Japan that is about this concept where a couple both hire one of these detectives <laughs> on each other. Or just Ooh. listen to the Pina Ooh. Colada song. Like, that's basically... <laughs> 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 Jimmy Buffett. That's right. Agent of seduction. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article also comes from Wired.com. I've been on a Wired kick this week, and it is titled <laughs> The Subtle Tricks Shopping Sites Use to Make You Spend More. Which, oh, there are so many. <laughs> so many. And I've worked for some larger e-commerce sites as well as some sites that, that involve rebates and coupons and the like, and I can tell you a lot about this. Mm -hmm. But in the article, back in April, when much of the United States was still sheltering in place, Amazon made an extraordinary decision, which was to subtly tweak its website to encourage customers to buy less, hmm. not more, in order to limit the strain of order surges because they're having so much trouble just fulfilling the demand. So mm. in addition to modifying their shipping timelines and inventory, they also disabled a recommendation feature that displays items frequently bought together, like batteries to go with the toy that's already in your cart. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And the changes underscored in a more roundabout way the extent to which digital retailers will carefully calibrate their websites to maximize the amount that visitors spend. And these tactics are often largely benign, such as offering free shipping for orders over a certain amount but others can be more deceptive, falling into a category which is often referred to as dark patterns. <laughs> for instance, you might hand over your email address for marketing messages if the affirmative widget is larger and brighter than the option to decline. Sure. And I can tell you that companies I've worked with will spend much amounts of money increasing the likelihood you're going to press on a button because it's slightly more purple and they can measure that in percentage <laughs> amounts. The term dark pattern was coined a decade ago by user experience designer Harry Brignall, who created a typology of dark patterns, many of which prey upon humanity's psychological weaknesses. Last year, researchers from Princeton University and University of Chicago published a study looking at roughly 11,000 shopping sites and found dark patterns on more than 11% of them, including major retailers like Fashion Nova and JCPenney. They found that the more popular the website, the more likely it was to feature these dark patterns. Arunesh Mathur, who's a graduate student at Princeton and the lead author of the paper, says that the prevalence of dark patterns online is harmful to people and it has the potential to impact more than just their wallets. He says that dark patterns are being used to undermine privacy and to rob users of their ability to critically reflect on their actions. Design mm. and behavioral science have become weaponized mm -hmm. to solely benefit online retailers and to exploit users. Mm -hmm. So how they do the study? Mather and his co-authors developed a bot that scanned thousands of shopping sites looking for text-based dark patterns, which they organized into 15 different types. One variety relies on a sort of peer pressure. 
hundreds of the websites that the researchers looked at used activity notifications alerting visitors that, you know, Sally just bought this dress, or 35 people are looking at this item right now. And they found on some sites, the messages were actually artificially fabricated without any real indication of real consumers buying things. And the goal is just to dupe you into believing that other people are interested in a product so you'll be convinced Mm -hmm. it's worth buying. Right. Better get it right now. Yeah. Exactly. Etsy even goes so far as to warn people how many other customers have a product in their carts, implying that it will soon be unavailable. And in their study, they found that shopping websites frequently don't specify an exact stock quantity, leaving you to interpret for yourself what low stock means. And even worse, on 16 websites they looked at, the researchers found that the stated stock numbers were entirely fake and just decreased in a, quote, recurring deterministic pattern according to a schedule. Yeah. So many retail websites will also exploit this by using countdown timers, telling you that a sale or special offer will expire after a certain amount of time. I see those all the time. Like those tickers that are just like, oh man, this deal is going to expire. The stock is going away. It just adds panic and anxiety that compels us to act. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So these researchers found deceptive timers on 140 of the shopping websites they examined. Like after the allotted time passed, some would just start over again. On other sites the discount was still available even after the clock had run out you know they're just there to make people impulsively make that purchase rather Mm -hmm. than tell them anything about a legitimate expiration date Mm -hmm. so another class of dark patterns is more subtle these are the ones that will steer you to specific decisions with text by downplaying other options for instance some websites will offer a discount if you provide your email address for example and then they'll try and shame those who refuse this is my personal pet peeve (laughs) they'll say something like no thanks i like paying full price right no thanks i hate saving money instead of just a decline button. I tend to leave those sites immediately, no matter what they're selling. Yeah, right. And another tactic is to ask customers trick questions, like using double negatives to confuse you, such as uncheck the box if you prefer not to receive email updates. (laughs) Yeah. Mather and his co-authors couldn't detect every dark pattern that may have been present, since they are mostly looking at only text. And they also note that it's not always clear whether a dark pattern is intentionally misleading, and experts and users might reasonably disagree because it can be really hard to determine the line between clever marketing and outright deception. Mm -hmm. For instance, in the paper, the researchers identified a handful of instances where reviews on shopping sites were of uncertain origin, indicating that they might be fake. In one case, they actually found the same reviews on two different e-commerce sites under different customer names. Mm -hmm. And faking customer reviews is actually a widespread practice and one that the FTC has taken some action to combat Mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. So many of the dark patterns found on shopping websites evolved from established tactics used in physical stores, such as psychological pricing. Retailers will often set prices at slightly less than a round number, like sure. you know, $9.99 instead oh, of $10. Yeah. yeah, but Mather says that digital retailers actually have advantages that brick-and-mortar ones don't, because online they can easily design, test, and integrate new patterns, or even yep. run different versions at the same time. And uh, I'll throw in a personal interlude, which is that this is called A-B testing, where they'll show a set of customers in A version of the site and B version of the site and compare actions so they can get literally a percentage number in terms of how much better one thing performs Mm -hmm. or doesn't perform. Well, and I feel like we're very close to the 
the idea of just everybody's individual preferences where they're like, ah, Jennifer Noonan doesn't respond to 999. But when it's 996, that's like her threshold where she's going to buy it. Whereas someone else, they're like, no, we can get that extra three cents. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of the time we don't even have the context required to realize that we're being marketed to or totally. even personalized. Mm-hmm. Like these big companies have so much data that they can sort you into a cohort based on your spending patterns and essentially get a percentage match of how likely you are to be like other consumers. And therefore, mm-hmm. they recommend the same groups of items to mm-hmm. you as XYZ. It's basically what Netflix does, but on a mass scale mm-hmm. and for things oh, that yeah. you can buy. So the article ends by saying, to avoid being duped, take careful note of what behaviors a retailer appears to be encouraging and how those nudges make you feel. You can also employ tools to help, like Icebox, which is a browser extension that freezes checkout pages until a specified period of time has passed, keeping you from making impulse buys. Ooh! Yeah. You can also intentionally add more friction into your shopping experience by declining to use automatic payment options like PayPal and Apple Mm -hmm. Pay. Or not saving your credit card info either and having to enter it in every single time as opposed to making it just a one-click, you know, zero-pain situation. Yeah, if I got to get up to walk across the room, that sale might not happen. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, this one comes from Popular Mechanics by Kyle Mizakami. It's about a new type of airplane jet, which is kind of cool. The Georgia based aviation startup Hermius has developed what they're calling a Mach 5 engine, basically supersonic. Ooh. The key is that it is two types of engine in one. So, first, you have traditional engines, which are called turbofan engines for turbojets. And what it does is it sucks air in the front, forces it out the back along with the exhaust gases to create forward thrust, right? And then there is a second type of engine called a ramjet engine, which uses the actual forward speed of the aircraft to ram greater amounts of air into the front of the engine, allowing for greater speed. And they don't really explain how that works other than the fact that it is taking advantage of the forward speed of the aircraft, which leads to the problem that a ramjet engine cannot be used from startup it can only be engaged at the point that the aircraft is already moving a certain speed. Mm, mm -hmm. And so in order to create like supersonic planes of the past, like the famous SR-71, what they had to do was have two engines. They had to have a second turbofan engine that could get it started or else something like a rocket booster, which would initially get it up to speed. But either way, Mm. it's added weight, it's waste, it's extra money, and it just was never an ideal solution. But Hermius says they -hmm. have designed a prototype that combines them into one engine. It can have turbofan function initially and then can switch to ramjet at higher speeds and then switch back to turbofan for landing. So it seems like a pretty amazing device if it's real. But all they really did was put out a press release and nobody outside of the military has actually seen it. So nobody's been able to say, is this real or is this like one of the situations where they just totally made it up and they're (laughs) looking to get money from it? But they noted there's a couple of other issues solved. Ramjet engines haven't been used for long flights in the past because they have to be very careful of overheating. And the Hermes press release claims to use a proprietary pre-cooler that lowers the air temperature before it forces into the engine. And so these things can actually take long flights. And they claim, and this is where I start getting very skeptical because it sounds too good to be true. They claim that their prototype modifications were made to a, quote, off-the-shelf engine. (laughs) The idea of an off-the-shelf engine aside being funny to me, I mean, it seems like this is all just a lot of stuff all in one thing. They say it took them only nine months to develop. I just, my red flags are going off. I don't know. Yeah. 
But somebody in the government is sold. They spent money on uh, further development. And the interesting twist here is which branch of the government is funding that further development. It's actually coming from the Air Force's Presidential and Executive Airlift Directorate, meaning they want to make Air Force One supersonic. Oh, good God. Yes. (laughs) An interesting side note, Air Force One is not actually a single plane. It's a small fleet of planes. And Air Force One is just whichever plane the president happens to be on. So they've ordered two of the modified supersonic 747s to add to the Air Force One fleet. They've bragged that this is going to be able to take the president from New York to London in 90 minutes rather than seven hours, Whoa. which I got to admit is pretty impressive. I don't know that he's the one who needs to be moving that fast, but mm-hmm. they, uh, not that we can go to London right now anyway. And they do note in the article, it, <laughs> it, it does have some military applications. It can outrun ballistic missiles as the article notes, like the Chinese DF-21 medium-range ballistic missile. So a little nationalistic fear- mm. fear-mongering in that. Other people make ballistic missiles as well. Mm-hmm. But the supersonic engine could basically take off from a relatively distant Air Force base after we've detected the launch of one of these missiles, get all the way over there, intercept the missile, then turn around and fly home at a leisurely turbojet speed. And that, I have to say, is one of the things that makes me think maybe it is real, and it actually has been in use for a long time. Because this feels like the kind of technology that the military would have had for maybe a decade, and they're only now admitting it. And so they're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, we'll make Air Force One. Because mm-hmm. that just isn't the thing you need to make fast. It really isn't. He can go slowly. It's fine. Right. <laughs> but the good news is the presidential planes will not be ready until 2024. So barring any horrific hijinks, Trump will never get to fly in one. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows? 2020 has been full of surprises. Yeah, let's, let's just assume. Let's assume that he's not going to. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Our next link comes from Barbie Lotsenadeau for the Daily Beast, and this article is entitled "Drug Smuggling Cat Escapes High Security Sri Lankan Prison." Oh, wow! The wait, they had the cat in prison. Yeah, nice. <laughs> oh yeah. So basically, and it's a really short and sweet one. I mean, I'm probably just going to end up reading the whole thing out loud, but it's got this great picture that's just a Getty Images picture of a lovely plush tabby cat, not knowing whether this is the actual cat in question, but a cat that had been. Det- Detained at Sri Lanka's high security Welikata prison on suspicion of smuggling drugs to inmates has escaped. They detained the cat last week with two grams of heroin, two SIM cards, and a memory chip hidden in a plastic bag tied to its collar on the prison grounds. They suspect that the drug traffickers who trained this cat are part of the same cartel that was caught using an eagle to (laughs) smuggle drugs in a suburb of Colombo. You got to give them credit. I mean, they're using classy animals, at least. That's cool. Yeah. And these are not known for being highly trained animals. Like, I know you can train, you know, birds of prey, but cats, training cats to do anything. I mean, the cat's in on it. That's the only explanation. (laughs) Right. Right? The article very cheekily notes that the menagerie of accomplices were associated with the underworld crime boss Angoda Loka. And Loka died while hiding from the authorities in early July, according to local media. Then a man and a woman were arrested Sunday for illegally cremating him and forging identity documents. Oh. So, article doesn't really go into that speculation, but pretty shifty here, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> The article goes on to note that while there is no stipulation for animal arrest under Sri Lankan law, police were hoping that the cat could lead them to the smuggler's den. Mm -hmm. The cat reportedly scampered out of its holding room and escaped through a fence when prison guards came in to feed it. Because snitches get stitches. He knows the game. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that cat ain't no rat. That's right. No, That's right. he definitely isn't. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today. A star went supernova in 1987. Where is it now? The force of nothingness has been used to manipulate objects. And the man who saved Kyoto from the atomic bomb. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.